This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, the show that talks all things outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country, or as we like to call it, paradise. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We're checking in with Andy Try. He's the Acting Bear Project Leader with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. We talked bear last year. We're going to talk bear again this year. Andy, welcome back to the show and thanks for taking the time. Glad to be back. Let's just start with uh, your title, Acting Bear Project Leader. What does that mean? Well, that means that uh, that our longtime bear project leader, Dave Garcellis, retired last year. And uh, I am filling in the role temporarily until uh, our statewide hiring freeze is up. And so what that means is my job pertains to all the bear research that goes on in the state. We have four active study areas, and uh, all that research gets poured into the population dynamics and the uh, population estimates and trend that we have going on um, to help us inform management decisions and uh, help us make decisions about harvest quotas and that sort of thing. So what are we seeing in these studies right now? So uh, as your listeners will probably remember, the bear population peaked out at about the late 1990s and the early 2000s at about 25,000 bears. And that was too high for um, folks in Minnesota to tolerate there was quite a lot of nuisance um, nuisance issues and bear damage especially with with crop producers and so the agency took a more aggressive approach in issuing hunting licenses and permits and so since then um, the bear population dropped fairly rapidly we lost about 50 percent of our bears statewide um, and then in 2012 we cut the permits way back to 1980s levels and the population has stabilized and seems to be very slowly increasing over the last couple of years. So we turn that nosedive around, things are stable and, and on the up and up. Um, what that also means, though, is we have to be prepared for these successes. And so one success is that there will be more hunting opportunity available for folks um, in the quota areas. But additionally, it also means that with, with a recovering bear population, you have a lot of these younger bears, two- and three-year-olds, kind of like the teenagers that are getting into <laughs> getting into all kinds of mischief, at least for bears. And um, with that, folks need to be careful about what they leave out in their yards and, and just be cognizant that anything that would attract a bear to your yard, that's food, bird seed, that sort of thing, those all need to be secured because uh, the bears are out and active. Um, they leave the den area about this time of year, and basically it, you need to have these things secured from now until about, about Thanksgiving. So, uh, and one of the things that prompted my call was, uh, you know, I got a DNR um, press release, and among the things they were saying is, you know, avoid feeding birds from April 1st to November 15th. That's pretty much against everything we stand for in Minnesota. <laughs> Absolutely. And we're, the, the idea isn't necessarily to um, to prevent folks from enjoying wildlife and Especially with COVID, that's that's one of the few joys that we still still have left, <laughs> and and so I'm issuing those are essentially general rules where where you have a fair amount of bears, and so um, in areas where you don't have very many bears, 
you can probably feed birds just fine. But um, when you have issues, or when there are, I should say, bears that cause issues in the area, um, it's generally a good idea to not feed at all. Um, and the reason it, for that is that once bears get a food reward, like basically if they knock down your droll Yankee feeder or um, whatever sort of bird feeder you have, and that it also can include hummingbird feeders, um, they have a really good memory. And so they, they know that they have gotten food here in the past and they will keep returning just to check to see if that food's available. And so one way to get around this is to keep your bird feeders secure. And so by that I mean you can just uh, essentially get one of these commercial electric fencing nets um, and erect an uh, electric fence corral around your bird feeders. That way the birds can still get to the feed, but the bears get a deterrent when they try to eat those feed or eat that seed. The other option is you can just make sure to pull your feeders in um, in and at night and make sure there's no spilt seed because they'll continue to eat whatever spilt out during the day. Um, or put them up really high on a, you're looking at probably 10 feet up in the air and then more than six or eight feet from any given branch. Um, you can do this with a pulley system or, or super long pole. All right. Well, yeah, there's, and uh, I know several people be, because of raccoons that have to bring their cedar, their seed feeders in at night too. So some people are, are, are definitely used to that. I have not had to do that for either bears or raccoons at this point. We'll see what happens there. But um, you talked about before uh, we had too many bear, and then we kind of had too few bear. What is the ideal number of bear for Minnesota? That's a tricky question to answer, um, and it, when, when management um, agencies get into the point where they're trying to set a, a, a number of animals, that's a really, um, it's a really hard position to, to set, and it's a hard target to hit. And so um, the, the squishy answer is somewhere between uh, what we had before, 25,000, and more than we had at the bottom, which was about 10,000. And so essentially what we're looking for is uh, a stable trend where we can balance um, hunter opportunity, a resilient bear population. And what I mean by resilient is that um, bear harvest is pretty much all driven by the number of hunters and uh, what the fall food situation is. And so we can't predict what food will be when we set the quotas. The only thing, the only thing we have control over is the number of hunters. And so if we have multiple bad food years in a row, a resilient bear population would be one that could tolerate multiple two or more bad food failure years within a five-year period and not require drastic changes to the quotas. Um, the other thing that we have to balance is is property and crop damage, and so at some point it'll hit a hit a situation where um, property damage and, and crop damage is too high, and then we would we would correct. And so um, our agency uses what's called adaptive management, and so that's you you set your quotas, you measure what the complaints are, you measure hunter success, you measure wait times, all those other variables as well as the food situation, 
and then you make adjustments each year to kind of tailor what things are going. And so basically we're looking for um, a sustained population um, where the population kind of fluctuates around some middle ground between the peak and the, the bottom. Mm-hmm. And uh, we reach out through hunter surveys and sort of uh, human dimensions work to kind of figure that out. Um. So you, you mentioned uh, uh, food failure or, or tough food years. What food are we talking about? So we monitor about 18 different food sources, natural foods for bears, uh, statewide every year. This is done with a survey through the wildlife managers as well as foresters and folks who are just out in the field a lot. And so the, the primary summer ones we're talking about are raspberries, blackberries, blueberries, um, pin and choke cherries, June berries are also called service berries, depending on where you're from. Um, and those are the major ones. And then in the fall, that's kind of the critical thing. And that's, we're talking acorns, we're talking hazelnuts, and then we're talking dogwood berries. And there's four species of dogwoods in Minnesota, but in general, the big ones are round leaf dogwood and um, red osier dogwood that are prime for bears. Okay. You know, when you when you talked about 25,000 being too many bears, I mean, considering the acres of woods we have, I, I got to admit, I, I thought that was surprisingly low for for a, a number considered too high in, in a state with as much uh, habitat as we have. That's absolutely right. And so the thing with bears um, that's different from a lot of other species is that we could probably – Carrying capacity-wise, we could probably get in the 40 or 50,000 um, situation before we start to see any density effects of density on, like, um, how quickly bears are growing and that sort of thing. But there's no way that society would tolerate that many bears. It's just because bears, by their nature, are smart. They remember where foods are. And it's, it's just it's really hard for, for everybody to be vigilant to keep all of their attractants secured at all times and like how do you secure a cornfield you know it's just really hard and so um that's where we find that kind of what folks will tolerate is kind of our guide um and so yeah it's it's a very um interesting balance but many states and provinces operate this way just just because that's the nature of bears yeah was it uh two years ago that uh, we really had quite an influx of bears heading into towns on a, on a real regular basis, far more than we had typically seen? It really depends kind of uh, where you are in the state. So last year in the north-central part of the state and the northeastern part, the Arrowhead, um, is, is some of the worst summer food conditions we've had in about 20 years. And so they were getting bombarded with complaints and bears coming into town hungry. Um, things sort of evened out over the as we got into fall and the acorns showed up um, and the hazelnuts showed up and the dogwoods kind of peered out um, once the rains came in midsummer, but all that berry production was essentially just gone. You, the, you go out to the berry patches and they're just dried husks. But uh, the year before, um, the western part of the state and kind of the, if you draw a line from Brozo to Bemidji down to Brainerd, that part of the state had um, a similar situation where they had a fairly or fairly dry conditions and not super great food productions, and so it's really kind of patchy across the state about what happens, and um, a lot of variables go into it, like uh, 
the how long the spring is, how long of or how much rain you get in early spring, summer, fall, that sort of thing. Um, so, about how many uh, people are out bear hunting every fall, and uh, and what kind of harvest do we see? Sure. So, in a, in the a nor, I'm going to say a normal year for the last couple, because um, we made a few changes last year, and with um, with folks being itching to get out in the woods, we had a increased participation rates. But um, in general, we have about. 6,600 to about 7,000 hunters every year chasing bear. Um, the It's about evenly split between the quota area and the no quota area. Okay. And then last year we had a big drastic increase um, in the number of, of licenses purchased. Part of it, this is probably due to just people having more time and less less things competing for their time. But also, um, we, we made a regulation change in in an area down near uh, Little Falls in which it was essentially technically in the quota area, but there was no set limit. And so we had a 1,000 hunters in that zone. Um, but we had record high participation in the no quota last year as well. And so um, success rate in the quota area is some of the highest in the entire country. Um, last year, because the foods were so bad, we had almost 60% harvest success in the quota area, and the year bef- which beat the record, which was the year before, which was 49%. And so we have some of the best bear hunting success rates in the entire country in the quota zone. It's just that it takes longer um, to get drawn, and it's just that trade-off because there's less less people competing over the same bears that there used to be. And so with less pressure, more hunters are successful. Acting Bear Project Leader for the Minnesota DNR, Andy Tribe, will join me later in the show. we got a lot more to cover with Bear. But up next, Steve Sapaniak from Predator Guide Service joins us and gets us ready for those first few trips on the water. We're going to be able to get out there long before the walleye opener. We talk fishing next on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoor. Welcome back to Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. I'm Kev Jackson. Checking in with Steve Sapaniak of Predator Guide Service. Steve, welcome back. How's it going this week? Oh, thanks for having me back, Kevin. Going pretty good. Really good. I can't complain. I'm getting antsy for the open water season. I'm going through all my tackle boxes again, getting my tackle taken care of. I don't know how many times I can do that. Changed <laughs> the new line on my rod and reels. Uh, got myself a strategy of where I want to go fishing and what to fish for opening day. I'm going to probably chase after a pike on Malax Lake and the elusive walleye, you know, so, yeah, everything is good. I'm excited. So, uh, you know, just can't wait for that day to get here. What are we seeing down your way as far as uh, open water at this point? A lot of, lot of small lakes, Kevin, in the vicinity of Rama Lakes Lake are open already. Uh, good chunk of Malax Lake itself is open. It all depends on the wind. You could have a north wind and block off that south opening, you know, of water, and, and it could switch, too, from the south to the north. You know, there's a great big mass out there shifting back and forth of ice. But for the most part, Kevin, on the big lake, all the shoreline is looking pretty good. It's open. I see a lot of people starting to move around and checking out their local, you know, the back bays for panfish and everything. A little early yet, but it's going to happen real quick. Okay, yeah. It's, it's, we're going to have plenty of time to get on the water prior to the walleye opener this year, I think, uh, for sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, when you hit the water, uh, 
you know, uh, what what kind of a boat did, and motor do you have? What are you what are you into? Oh, thanks for asking. I get asked that question a lot. What I got? Um, I'm proud to say I run a Crestliner boat. Been running them, Kevin, for 30 years. Um, I'm an old welder. Did that for a number of years, and I like anything that's welding. So Crestliner boats have been perfect for me. I run a Mercury Optimax four-stroke motor, outboard motor. It's the first four-stroke I've ever owned, Kevin. And oh my God, has that is that thing quiet? and smooth running and is so fuel efficient and gas efficient i'm surprised i think i maybe added quarter oil throughout the whole year and i'm guiding you know like last year i was probably out 150 days minimum guiding uh you know equipment it's always a good choice to have a, a good selection of equipment a good selection of rods and reels and i've been with a tooth tamer rod company for a number of years they're from wisconsin so they're american-made Tooth Tamer has got the sensitivity of, of some of the higher class um, rods that used to be on the market years ago. You know, Shimano owns them now. Uh, the sensitivity is incredible. So, yeah, Tooth Tamer has been really good. Plus, it has a lifetime warranty. Uh, as far as lures chasing the big muskies and stuff, I've been real, real happy with uh, spinner baits like the Rad Dog Lure has been number one. I've been using Suix for a number of years, uh, probably 40 years from Wisconsin. It's still one of the best jerk baits made. It's incredible. Uh, Dreamcatcher Lures has been great with bucktails, and I ordered some new bucktails from a company called Jenny Boo Baits. Jenny Boo Baits, they're bucktails. I've had a number of guys tell me over the last couple of years how great they are, and I got a hold of the owner, and I ordered three of them. Uh, check them out, folks. They're catching huge, huge muskies. If you're a muskie fanatic and big pike, Check them out. It's Jenny Boo Bates. Uh, tell Jacob, the owner, I sent you. That'd be great. But basically, that's it for equipment. There are so many lures on the market, Kevin, nowadays, and rods and reels, you know. But like I said, I stick with what's been good for me. Chris Arden Boats, Mercury Motors, Two Tamer Rods, and all the other lure companies around. So, yeah, it's been a win-win situation. I just, like you said, can't wait to get on the open water. What do you like to run for, for electronics? Uh, good question. I am a fan of Lowrance. I've been with Lowrance for many, many years. Lowrance, I think, is leaders in the industry, and I know I'm the first to admit there's a lot of great, great electronics out there other than Lowrance. Garmin's wonderful. Hummingbird is great. I'm just an old fan of Lowrance because they do a great job. I can pick up a gnat on the bottom of the lake, let's say. And it's got the clarity I need, and it's also easy to run and understand. If you're an old old fisherman like I am, uh, simplicity at times is best, and I like simplicity. So that's my electronic end, you know, especially like when I'm walleye guiding. If you see a little hump on the bottom, I can guarantee you over there at Sloppy Joe's, I'm relaxed, like that's a walleye. And Lawrence has that kind of dedication, and uh, it shows that separation perfectly. Now, for trolling motor, I use a motor guide. I've been with motor guide for 20-some years. Uh, my big boat's an 1850 Fishhawk Crestliner. Uh, you know, you're on the big lake, you're going to get some two, three, four-foot rollers. And I like, if I'm guiding, I want to stay out where the action is as long as I can. So my motor guide has a 60-inch shaft. It's 105 pounds of thrust, and it's 36 volt. I can guide all day and into the next day, you know, two days straight on that one charge. So it's well worth it, folks. When I began guiding, I went from a 12-volt to a 24 to a 36 all in one year, and it's well worth going 36-volt. Uh, keeps you on the lake a lot longer. Um, as far as being on the boat and everything, I've got my bunch of life jackets more than I legally need. I've got my horn, and I've got a flare gun kit for emergencies. You know, uh, back back in the days before cell phones, Kevin, we used to have uh, 
walkie-talkies or CB radios, you know, breaker, breaker, you know, those old shows and stuff. Well, nowadays we got cell phones. Don't be afraid to call up if you need an emergency or you have an emergency on the lake. I had one gentleman, and I'm going to tell you this quickly. It was years and years and years ago, Kevin. We just released a 45-inch muskie he caught. 20 minutes later, his partner and I hear, oh, my God, good Lord, oh, my God, and then boom. I turn around. He is on the bottom of the boat doing the floppy crappie twitching so bad. I ran back there. His friend ran back there. We're hollering, Gary, Gary, what's wrong? What's wrong? He couldn't talk. I said, I'm going to call 911. Long story short, I went to the second one after I dialed 91, and to the second one, his hand swiped me away. I said, Gary, what the heck is going on? You're scaring me. His friend goes, Steve, just call 911. Again, I got to the second one. His hand swept me away. Well, this is already going six minutes into it. We got Gary off the bottom of the boat. He's sitting on the back deck. He is reaching for a pack of cigarettes. His hands are shaking so bad, over half the pack went flying. I looked at him. I said, Gary, you got to tell us now what the H double hockey stick is going on. <laughs> he looked at me, and he mumbled, biggest blank and fish I ever saw. We looked at each other, and I said, Gary, I said, what? He goes, biggest muskie I ever saw. I looked at his friend. I said, Kurt, did you see a muskie? He said, Steve, I seen a wooden log in the water. And Gary goes, yeah, with two eyes. So my point is, if need be, call call for emergency you know that's why we got cell phones um that's about it as far as what my boat has besides way too many lures kevin and most of the time i'm prepared for musky fishing walleye fishing northern pike fishing uh and the same day if i have to go after pan fishing well i just make a quick trip back to the cabin and, and restock on my pan fish equipment anything uh new out there that you've uh, you've noted that you think it looks pretty interesting right now uh, that bucktail from Jenny Boo Bates has really got my curiosity. I can't wait to get it. Suic has come out with a couple of different lures, which is really nice. I'm excited to get some hands on some of them. Uh, Musky Mayhem has come out with some different lures. Now, if you're into the pike fishing and stuff, there's a bunch of different spinnerbaits that have come on the market from different brand companies. One of them has a selection of about five to seven blades on it, so it looks like a cluster of minnows. That's a great idea. I like that idea. Largemouth bass and smallmouth bass, Kevin, we're starting to see new plastics coming on board, which is exciting. Uh, new lead head jigs with different structure and contour to them. Uh, a lot of people are getting into small um, drop shotting, Kevin, for smallmouth bass on Mille Lacs Lake and the surrounding lakes. You know, drop shotting has been a very successful method as far as going after smallmouth bass. But here's something else, too. For all you panfish connoisseurs who love to chase those big bluegills, try drop shotting with a leech. You're going to be pleasantly surprised how many big panfish you get. Just sitting in that stationary position on the edge of a weed bed, cabbage weeds, and, you know, it may take a few minutes, but you're going to be surprised. Those big bull, uh, bull bluegills love that drop shotting. Uh, so that covers a selection there pretty good. There's a lot of walleye stuff coming on the market that's been exciting to, to go after. It's hard to keep up with all the different um, crankbaits on the market, especially walleye fishing. You know, myself, I'm going to be an old dog again. If I'm walleye fishing, which I'm going to be, you know, besides pike fishing opening day, I'm starting off with my own homemade Lindy Rig snails. The snails we start off with are anywhere from four to six feet long. I know you can buy them three feet long in the stores. Many times on Mille Lacs Lake, Kevin, they're too short. You want to get something far enough away from that sinker that doesn't just, you know, detract the fish from going after it. So starting off at four to six feet, most likely a six-foot-long fluorocarbon leader, six-pound test. I've got a number four red Yamagatsu hook and then a swivel on the other end. Now, here's something to keep in mind, folks. Fluorocarbon is 99.9% .9 completely invisible in the water. 
That's pretty impressive. Now, I mentioned red Yamagata hook. Red hook, once it gets past 12 foot, has a tendency to blend into the water column like MSG and meatloaf. It's just about invisible. So that's another good factor. So on my main line, my snell is six-pound test. My line on my reel goes back to six-pound test. Sensitivity is the key. Now, here's something a lot of people don't realize when you're walleye fishing, especially Lindy rigging, don't drink that sinker. That's the first thing I ask people is how far back do you drag that sinker? And it's anywhere from 10 yards to 50 yards. Well, what you're doing when you drag that sinker is you're dragging the bottom. If you're on the mud flats of Malax Lake, you got a dust cloud of mud. If you're on the sandbars on the south end of Malax Lake, you got a dust cloud from all the sand. No presentation gets seen by the fish, Kevin. So what you want to do is touch bottom, then with your wrist, lift three inches off the bottom. Every 30 seconds, I tell my clients to a minute. I said, touch bottom again, then lift up. Maybe I forgot to tell you, hey, folks, we just dropped two feet, and you can adjust your line accordingly. But every 30 seconds to a minute, touch bottom and lift up quickly, because when you touch bottom and lift up, that sinker, walking sinker, makes a puff of dust and a little bit of a noise, and any walleye in the area is going to come over to investigate that puff of dust thinking it's a crayfish, and here comes a clean presentation of a leech or a crawler. So that's pretty much what's going to happen in our family in the opening weekend if I'm not guiding. Okay. You uh, recently wrote a couple of uh, articles for Outdoor News. Tell us a little bit about those. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, actually, it was early season pike tactics, strategies, and location, and I did the same thing for panfish. Uh, early in the season, you know, you're gonna. This is the one time of year you're gonna have a twenty, thirty pound northern pike in the same area, the same bay as a little two pound hammer handle. The big pike are in there right now. Mother Nature has triggered the instincts to go into the shallow water to stage, which means they're just sitting there right now waiting for the right temperature to spawn. And these fish are accessible with the right techniques and procedures. Now, location for big pike is going to be the weed beds. Cabbage weed gives off the most oxygen, Kevin, per volume. It attracts phytoplankton, zooplankton. It's a whole smorgasbord buffet of microorganisms. In return, they attract minnows and other game fish and bait fish. So you got a great big uh, area full of teeming with uh, a buffet of fish for the big northern pike to feed on. And once the uh, spawn happens, they're going to stay in that bay to recuperate until the water temperature warms up and they're ready to move to their secondary locations, which is the primary lake itself. Now, that's the northern pike. You can use spoons. You can use uh, spinner baits to get them. If it's a finicky bite, folks, Put a sacramento on, about six to eight inches long. Let it sit there below a bobber, bobber excuse me, and a quick strike rig. Now, a lot of people want to hook the lips, both lips of uh, the quick strike rig through the sacramento. Just hook the top lip. You don't want to drone them. And the second hook, you, don't, you do not put through the dorsal fin on the back of the minnow. You only put it into one side of the minnow and not through. So the minnow can swim around freely. A presentation that sits there swimming around looking normal is sometimes hard for a finicky pike to resist. You know, you can only get slapped in the face so long and you're going to take it. So that's your northern pike. Same thing with the panfish. Mother Nature triggered them. They're in the shallows right now, too. The sunfish love anywhere from 4 feet to 10 feet with a sand flat with weeds, a weed flat. And that's where they're going to be hanging. Now, the crappies will be on the edge of that weed flat sitting on the drop-off, or especially if you've got bulrushes, that mirrored maze of roots that bulrushes have is like a wood, and it holds panfish, especially crappies. Low light conditions in the early morning and late evening, Kevin, that's when the crappies will come out of the deep. They'll go up there by the sunfish and join them into feeding. 
Uh, so right there, it covers your crappies where they are. Now, this time of year, panfish are going to be after bloodworms, mealworms, red wigglers, white wigglers, waxworms, freshwater shrimp. Main thing is, keep in mind, folks, the reason they're after all these animals I just mentioned, different baits, is because of the smell. So plastics work all good, artificial. If they got some smell to them, it's going to do the same thing. But keep in mind, too, when you're fishing bobbers for these panfish, twitch that lure a little bit every once in a while. I like to twitch it at least five, six times during a minute course because these, uh, especially artificials, they don't move like natural live baits do, so you want to imitate that. So that pretty much covers what those articles were. I think you'll enjoy them, folks. They get published and stuff, you know. Give it a try. I think you're going to have some fun this year with the panfish. And that's, again, in outdoor news, correct? Outdoor news, yep, I just sent them in. They may get published in the next uh, few weeks or so. It's up to the uh, it's up to the powers to be. All right. Steve, anything else before we wrap it up today? No, I tell you what, talking about the fishing, talking about the different species got me excited. I don't know how many <laughs> more times I can go through my tackle box and clean it. It's never looked this good, but I want to thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. You bet. Steve, one more time for people, if they want to use Predator Guide Service, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, just check out my website, you know, all one word, predatorguideservice.com. My phone number is there, a lot of big fish, anywhere up close to 50 pounds for muskies. We got northern pike up to 46 inches. We got a lot of decent-looking walleyes, too. Our best day was 76 walleyes. So check out my website, get, get my phone number, give me a call, and let's get something going. All right, that's Steve Saponiak. Thanks, Steve. Have a great week. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Kevin, and you as well. So it's been a pretty good stretch for Bears. UCLA Bruins made the Final Four. The Baylor Bears won it all. How about the Minnesota Bears? How are they doing? Time to bring Andy Tribe, the Minnesota DNR, back in. This is Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. One of the things that I hear a lot about, of course, when I'm talking to the fishing guys in particular, because that's who I talk to the most, but also wildlife guys and duck guys, is is climate change and how that's changing things about where birds are and where fish are and things like that. Are we seeing any trends around the continent that bears are moving? I know we pretty much are just black bear territory, but is there any hints that that might change in the future? It's hard to make a direct link with climate change in bears just because bears are so adaptable. I mean, they live, you can you can essentially find bears from uh, Manitoba all the way down to the Yucatan Peninsula. And so it, it's a very wide-ranging amount of, or levels of habitat that they'll, they'll touch. But the main thing, the main concerns for bears is that uh, as things warm up and the the way that the carbon in the atmosphere changes, it's quite possible that we'll be expanding bear habitat or increasing the quality of bear habitat farther north. As the boreal forest retreats and the the oaks take over, that oak habitat is probably the best the best bear habitat period. I mean, where you have good oak production, you have really good bears, and so they're probably going to do fine on the long game. But in the short term, one thing that we have noticed is that the ability of us to do our work pretty far into March has completely um, stopped just due to the way that the springs have been. And so in, in the 1980s, when we'd go out in the Chippewa National Forest and, and work, up, work up females with cubs, we didn't even used to start until the second week of March, and we could usually go into the early April without any issue. The bears would be hanging around their, their dens, they'd be in their dens, and everything would be um, just as it was. And the last probably five or ten years, 
if we're not completely done with dens by the second week of March, the bears are, are a lot more active and more apt to run. And so we've seen some switches there. Um, there's also been some big changes in uh, food production in our Chippewa National Forest study. From the, It's not strictly linked to climate change. It's a lot of different factors, but climate has... has um, climate is one factor in this this suite, and so essentially the summer berries that I talked about before, there's a 70% decline in, in biomass up on um, this part of the forest from the 90s until now, and we're not 100% sure uh, exactly why. There's a lot of things going on, but um, if that's happening happening more wide, uh, widely, um, that would impact bears as well. Okay. Um I'm assuming the bears, as you noted, I'm assuming the bears are all woken up now. Yep, that's accurate. They they usually wake up towards the end of March and early April, and then they hang around the dens until about, on average, it's about the 15th of April. Some, some of course, get flooded out a little earlier or leave early, but on average, it's about the 15th of April. Okay. Um, and I, I've always assumed that basically bears are forest creatures am i correct on that i know they do go they they, they like the food in the egg areas but i got to think there's got to be a, a forest near anyway that's that's generally right um one of the things we found in our our study of bears up on the northwestern part of the state is that um after a big food failure in the mid 90s 1995 uh managers at at thief lake and the the crookston area they started to see bears showing up in areas they were never found before and the bears have stayed and actually thrived in that area that's some of the biggest bears you can um you can see in the state or up in that northwest country and it's it's because that the the habitats are so good those old glacial beach ridges hold oaks and are are really productive habitats they hold hazelnuts as well and so they've stayed females with cubs have stayed and the population has has grown up that way um, and so they actually seem to use less forest than the bears farther inland where forest is more available but but they're generally species and so as long as there's some forest and some natural foods for them and folks leave them alone bears will will pretty much thrive anywhere the, the only real limitation is when you're getting way out into the prairie country like along in the red river valley um, that's not super conducive to to bears existing long term, but it doesn't mean that bears are not there. Often they'll follow river corridors. We had one show up in far southwestern Minnesota a couple years ago in Jackson County, um, hitting uh, <laughs> hitting apiaries and, and honey producers, and we wouldn't would never have known that had we not been tracking these things with that um, bear sightings app that we have on our website. Wow. Um... Overall, you would say the bear population's in a healthy state in Minnesota right now. I would. We're we're not a hundred percent out of the woods yet, but we certainly have stabilized the population, and it's very slowly growing. In fact, even in the Nokota area, where there's unlimited hunting, the population is growing slightly faster than in the Kota area, and we attribute this just to the the better habitat. That that part of the state, the transition zone, has lots of oak. It has lots of agriculture that um, bears can use. The males use the corn more than the females do, but uh, it's really good habitat, and uh, it's, it's it's coming back a little faster. So we're not out of the woods yet. We're not going to make any drastic changes to the harvest quotas 
within the next year or two, but we can slowly start to ratchet these things up just to make sure that we have a nice, we maintain that stable population. How uh, how long do bears typically live, and what age do they start being, you know, key to producing the next generation of bears? This is this is my favorite question. So, uh, bears of any other mammal in the state, any other large mammal, um, they wait the longest. And so, on average, bears statewide reproduce at five. In the transition zone, the best areas of the state, um, they more often reproduce at four than five, although things seem to be changing over the last couple decades and there's been a shift to these older ages. Um, on average, a bear will probably, probably get 10 years or so of life. Um, if you look at the harvest statistics, the, the median age, the exact middle of all the bears harvested is three for females and two for males. Um, but we regularly get in eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 bears in the harvest. And sometimes we get very long-lived bears as well. Um, a couple of years ago, we had a 32-year-old female show up in the harvest. And so um, that does happen. Uh, we, ha- we also had the, the most long-lived bear ever documented, wild bear ever documented. She lived in the Chippewa National Forest, and she died in 2014 at age 39 and a half. Okay. So, you know, they, they, in fishing, the the biologists, they come up with the uh, slot limits to protect the, the spawners and the reproducers. Um, what age do we want our hunters to get? And which ones, and, and what age do we not, and how can you tell? The, the short answer is we, as a hunter, you can't tell. Um, <laughs> It's even hard to distinguish by sex. And so uh, there are some people that, that can do it. If you take a long look at um, the morphology and how the bear looks on the, while it's walking around, and if you get a look at um, near where its genitals are, sometimes looking at the, the hair formation, you can get an idea. But in general... Um, hunters can't tell them apart and that makes things really tricky furthermore the ones that are are most important to protect are those older females so reproducing females five and older Um, there's not really a good way to to sort those out either Um, in general once they reach a certain age four or five they're less likely to show up at baits in general so there's just a self-sorting that happens but in very bad food years, more reproductive or old females are drawn to these baits because they're hungry. They would normally avoid them, but they're disproportionately harvested in those bad fo- bad food years more than normal. And so that's when you start to get those sex ratios that are close to 50-50, and that's not so great. Ideally, we would want something closer to um, 55 or 60% male in the harvest just to protect those old females. Okay. So, Andy, how did you get into bears, and uh, what what draws you into this kind of work? So I did my uh, undergrad at the University of Minnesota in wildlife, and I had wanted, I had switched actually from fisheries to wildlife. I wanted to be, I wanted to work on northern pike so badly when I was growing up and in high school, and um, I actually couldn't pass organic chemistry the first time, and so I switched to wildlife because that wasn't a requirement. <laughs> Ironically, they they changed the requirements, so I still had to take it. So, um, 
I just had to roll with the punches. But um, long story short, I had always had an appreciation for bears. I thought they were really cool. And then um, I did my master's in Texas on bobwhite quail just to learn how to be a scientist. And um, I have a passion for, for upland game bird hunting. And then I met a bear biologist who worked in Mexico at the time. And so we started talking. I started helping her with some of her research. And then after that, I volunteered for Dave Garcellis' project in the Northwest, got a Ph.D. in urban bear um, work out in the, uh, on the East Coast, New Jersey, West Virginia, Pennsylvania. And then I lucked out that um, there was an available position here after Karen Noyce retired. And, and I've, I've just been so happy um, ever since. It's really hard to get a bear job in, in the U.S. And in my home state, it's even harder. Karen was in that job, I think, for 32 years. Dave Garcellos was in his position for 37 years. And so it's just hard to get these positions. And um, the, the thing that I love most about bears is that they're, they're a real challenge. And so because you have this situation where you, the hunter can't tell them apart, um, they cause all kinds of nuisance issues when folks don't clean up their attractants. Um, they reproduce at a late age. And the primary source of mortality, no matter where you are in the state, is hunting. So it's just a complex situation, and I've, I've never really been one to turn down a challenge. And so <laughs> these bears certainly challenge me on a, a daily, weekly, and annual basis, but I certainly wouldn't have it any other way. Where are you from in, in Minnesota? I grew up in Oak Grove, Minnesota, just on the north end of the, the suburbs of, of the Twin Cities. Okay. But now I live up in Hibbing. Okay. And, uh, yeah, that's, there's probably a few bears up in Hibby. There are. There are. <laughs> it's, um, with, with any time a, a bear tends to show up, at least in some of the range cities, it's, um, it's because of our geography and, and where the mines are located. Sometimes it's more a surprise to some people than not. But, um, in general, it's the land of mines and pines up here, and I absolutely love it. It's nice to have a study area near, nearby my home. All right. And uh, I'm trying to think, is there, is there anything else you want to make sure we know about before we wrap it up today, Andy? Um, the only thing I can think of is just to, if you live in bear country, just make sure that your attractants are secured and you can hedge off any bear problems ahead of time. Once bears know that your area has food or know that your yard has had food in the past and they've gotten that reward, it makes things much more difficult to resolve after that. And so just for the sake of the bears, um, keep those attractants secured, secure your trash in a locked building, and keep those bird feeders um, either protected or just pull them down um, and, and wait till the winter time to feed bears again, or feed birds again. So Andy, you had a situation with some orphan bear last year. Remind us what caused that and then what you guys did about that. Sure. So we every year we... Uh, we receive a few orphan cubs uh, here and there where either their mother was hit by a car or um, different situations in which, which cubs get orphaned. And uh, those cubs end up going down to wild and free in garrison and are rehabbed and then released the next year. And so when we were speaking last, we were having a couple, there were a couple situations in which farmers were combining their corn in the spring. And um, there were a few orphan cub situations where the cubs were rescued and brought to Garrison. And um, just last week, I brought the, the bears from Garrison. They, they, were wake, they had woken up, 
and uh, we're ready to ready to go. And we turn them loose up in the Beltrami Forest near Grigla. Um, there's an interesting story Brad Dawkins wrote in the Grand Forks Herald um, documenting that process. What exactly happened? What we do is we go down to Garrison and uh, we anesthetize the the bears while they're still in their den, and then we put them in. Um, barrel and culvert traps and then haul them out to a remote location away from houses away from ag fields basically to give these bears the best chance they they absolutely can it doesn't uh, appreciably help the population anymore it's just to give these bears a chance where they wouldn't have had any um, had they been orphaned they would have they would have died and so uh, we turn them loose um, just open the doors and and move them out some of them are more hesitant to leave than others we've had to kind of prod them a little bit with a with a dull stick to give them a shove to move but they run out and live their lives very rarely do they they cause any trouble and they just live the rest of their lives as normal bears okay and and grig and and why grigola just a good area for for bears to be raised we do change where we release these every year this year um, we had a local volunteer that had identified some really good spots near Grigla in the Beltrami Forest where bears wouldn't get into trouble and wouldn't cause trouble with ag producers and um, that was a good spot this year but we we choose remote areas where the bears won't get into trouble or encounter humans um, to give them as as good a chance as we possibly can. You essentially gave uh, the the bear situation here in Minnesota a thumbs up but if you had to give it a letter grade A through F where are we at in the bear situation in Minnesota? We're probably at a, at a, I would give it a B. Um, so population-wise, things are, are on the up and up, but a lot of, uh, a lot of Minnesotans who are, who are new, buying new properties up in cabin country um, have lived the last 10 or 15 years with a low bear population, and so we need to prepare for success. And, and we're, we're changing our messaging. We've updated the website. We're trying to get on top of it, but um, in general, I think... As, a, as it's always a challenge, uh, working on education for homeowners and landowners and ag producers to make sure that human bear conflicts are kept to a minimum. All right. Are you guys going to be able to get back to, quote, normal, unquote, pretty soon? I think so. Uh, we're teleworking till the end of June, um, but I've been, I'm an exempted staff to be able to carry out our field work. Most of our staff that do field work um, have been able to get back to work, at least in that regard. It's, uh, we have to, to get all of our activities approved to make sure that we're being safe and taking the proper protocols. But um, in general, things seem to be on the up and up, and I'm hoping to, to get back to the office at some point once the vaccines come and I get both of my doses. Andrew Try is the Acting Bear Project Leader with the Minnesota DNR, talking all things bear with us today. Andy, Thanks for the time, and thanks for the info. It was uh, greatly appreciated and a great conversation. Thanks so much. Always appreciated. Well, that'll do it for another week of Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. If you ever miss an episode, don't forget we're podcastable at Podcast One or on the PodMN app or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. This has been Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We'll find out more about the great outdoors in Paul Bunyan Country next week. I'm Kev Jackson. Thanks for joining us.
Modern Warfare is here, and so is Mountain Dew. Roger that. Now you can unlock in-game rewards like only Dew can. Wait, what rewards? A Dew Operator Skin. Man, I love Operator Skins. Dual Double XP, and even Call of Duty Points. You're kidding me. Double XP and Call of Duty Points? This is incredible. I can't believe it. This Soldier, get a hold of yourself. Oh, roger that. Look for specially marked packaging and visit mtndugaming.com for details and restrictions. Open to U.S. residents 17 plus. College duty points available on 12 and 24 best and 328 23.